0: Trapped with Toby Lawson.
1: Welcome to another episode of Ideas on Untrapped. And on today's episode, I attempted to conduct an inquest into the nature of the global pandemic that changed most of our lives a little over a year ago. I did this by speaking to decision scientist Oliver Baig, Oliver was a persistent critic of what was passing for conventional knowledge about how most governments responded to the pandemic and how most of us in the public understood it. Oliver is a decision scientist with 25 years of experience building dynamic forecasting and decision models in various domains. He specializes in contagion in networks, and has a degree in industrial engineering and a PhD from UC Berkeley. He has worked for technology companies in Silicon Valley and Berlin and also has experience designing disaster responses. I started by asking Oliver what exactly was wrong about some of the exponential curves and predictions that many experts were predicting at the time the infections were raging. I do hope you enjoy it, and there's a lot that we will still learn as we go forward about this pandemic. Thank you. You were one of the, in my opinion, the sanest voices on. On I came across you on Twitter during the pandemic, I would say. So and I'll explain briefly what what I mean by that. So when the whole thing broke out. And I was, I would admit that I was a lockdown skeptic, not because I'm an expert or anything, but because I don't think it's a solution that applies in every context that it is being sold. But moving away from that a little bit, one of the things that caught the attention early on was a lot of people came out whether they are Silicon Valley people or other kinds of experts, to tell us to be alarmed about this outbreak, because specifically because it's an exponential curve, the way the infection rates work. And you were one of the people that came out quite early, I would also say before some other high status, high credential people jumped on board, you were one of the people early enough that came out to say that that was wrong and that it is not exponential. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, first thing I considered it serious early on. Even in February, I had a couple of business trips and I took precautions knowing there was something coming up. It looked like a serious epidemic at the point, but then you had this conversation about okay this is going exponential and then we started seeing a lot of like exponential graphs and a lot of explanations that an epidemic does not move linearly it moves exponentially and uh, the famous chess example calculations that it looks like pretty flat early on and we might be deceived into believing it's not going to be a serious epidemic and this is to a certain extent true because um, viruses self-replicate so they they double so you have an, an element to that but we know empirically that viral epidemics take a certain form and this is what's called the epidemiological cycle so they basically start increasing which looks very exponential for a while and then they taper off their peak and then they um, go down again. So you have like what's called an attack and a a decay. And this was definitely not widely known in March. Like people were expecting this would go forever given the information they were getting. And so I started pointing out, now this is like, great, we have a very clear idea of how the cycle works. Uh, This was basically step one. So there will be a peak so then this was like the first discussion and I sort of like started saying, okay, thinking that this will continue exponentially is a serious mistake we're making here. And we have to understand uh, very clearly at which point will this uh, this cycle peak, this wave peak, and then make all of our responses should focus on that. And so I had a lot of discussions also with, with academics. I'm fairly well connected on Twitter to a lot of um, um, top economists, and they said, oh, Yeah, like, okay, like, I don't get the, oh, what's the difference? What we're seeing here it really looks like an exponential cycle. Yeah, but it's like, this is like, if you, If you cannot separate empirically what you're seeing from an epidemic, you have to have a a model in place that tells you at which point can you tell it's not continuing uh, exponentially anymore in order to think about, like, is the response we're thinking of, is the lockdown, is that even still a response that makes sense given where we are in the cycle? Of course, like last discussion, people pointed out, and this is something that comes from biology, that eventually you will run into a um, population and so it will taper off eventually once it hits the whole population. Uh, Before it hits the whole population, this is like what's known like the herd immunity threshold is a model that sort of before it kills off the whole population, it will will eventually taper off. This is also wrong. Um, Very, very simply, you can think of like a lab model of a Petri dish. So you have bacteria in a petri dish that uh, replicate until they reach the rim of the petri dish. Before they reach the rim of the petri dish, like replication will go down. This is sort of where the epidemiological models come from, but this is not something we can convert into the real world. We eat sort of bacteria in a petri dish. You have basically a flat earth, a flat environment, and you have the same bacteria. In the real world, we have variants of viruses, and you have geography, you have climate, and you have very different humans, right? So genetically different humans, but also humans have very different immune history. Um, They had vaccinations before, they had encountered other coronaviruses before, they had encountered other non-coronaviruses, respiratory viruses before. So basically you have a very heterogeneous environment, and this is the important thing is you cannot use a homogeneous model to explain a heterogeneous world. The very fact that we have mutation in the world, this mutation is the simplest evolutionary mechanism to deal with heterogeneity. Yeah. So one of the key things to understand about those um, seemingly exponential uh, acceleration phases is that um, we see those whenever the environment is optimal. So this isn't something we see in a lot of evolutionary scenarios, also like invasive species, also any kind of production. When everything falls into place, Growth is scaling, so growth is accelerating. As soon as we're out of the like, optimal conditions, and optimal conditions could be a change in weather, a change in humidity, uh, but also like the population acquiring immune memory is that it will go down. But this is very simple and empirical fact that viral spikes take a few weeks. And this is the most likely explanation, and not um, interventions. So something. If you claim that an has stopped a spike, you have to come up with the proof and in order to do that. We have to get the data. Right. Sort of like we had, like over the last couple of weeks, like in Germany, we had like a, a very public discussion because we had a whole number of mostly academic official predictions that we're running into another massive exponential crisis and we're getting, I don't know what the numbers were, 10,000 people per day, new cases per day, and so on. Like they differ different a little bit, but everybody said, like, big warning that we're going to have, like, this exponential cycle. Again, with one exception, one professor basically said, okay, we don't have this for very long, and he was the only one who was actually correct in prediction. Everybody was far off. Discussions is like, how could they get it to wrong? And there's like a lot of excuses why they got it to wrong. The reason is very much they had the wrong model. You have to understand if you're seeing exponential looking increase, you have to be sure to think about like how long can this continue and think about like, when can it peak? And this simply did not happen.
1: So one of the examples you also pointed to early on was Japan. So, how was Japan getting it right? And, of course, we could also tell that they got it right by the outcomes. Mortality was very low in Japan, and it wasn't quite as catastrophic as other Western countries. So, from your knowledge and observation early on, what was Japan doing right that we were missing?
0: Yeah, I, I looked it up again, what I said last March, and uh, it's like very early on. What Japan was doing looked um, actually the right kind of response. Japan like made a mistake early on. They were very early at preparing, and they basically prepared for the wave coming from China, from, from Wuhan. They cut water traffic airports, put people in quarantine. They also got the very early information from the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess. So they looked like they were able to eliminate it, but then uh, what they didn't realize is the ricochet coming from Europe. So they've got introductions from elsewhere. And so they basically realized very early on that they could not run a suppression strategy, that they have to switch to a containment strategy. And what they did is very limited testing compared to the Western world. So there was like a, a strong call early on that Japan should test more, that they were only like limiting their testing because of the upcoming Olympics, that they would try to salvage the Olympics. They um, they cut us off. Very early. And so the reasons like what Japan did well and just like what very few people paid attention to in the West was a they had a very very clear early on idea of the uh, epidemiological numbers. They did a lot of epidemiological testing um, basically, cluster testing in both directions, continuum from uh, the first case they find into, like, who could this person have infected, but also going back to finding the original source. Uh, the other thing is sort of they realized very early on that hospitals could be critical places. So they made sure that they only send patients to the hospital uh, when it was necessary. It's one of the really critical cases, and this is like a very risky strategy to run because you can tell someone, no, you should not go to the hospital. It does not look serious, and then it turns serious. But basically this way, they reduce the load on the hospitals. And it turns out in a lot of Western countries, the most obvious example was New York City, or also in Italy, Lombardy, um, city of Virgo, where, um, massive problems coming through overstretched hospital resources, and also uh, contagion in the hospital. So this is something they got right. They continued testing mostly symptomatic cases, and they also continued limited testing and, and also making sure the only thing they were really paying attention to is like to avoid super spread events and outbreaks. So they've had a very light, compared to most Western countries, a very lightweight response. They never shut down the massive public transport system in Tokyo. They told everyone, okay, to wear a mask, which in a very crowded environment makes sense. Uh, And they also had a number of emergencies, which they cannot legally enforce. They can ask people, if possible, to stay at home, but they were not able politically to impose lockdowns. So a lot of people at the beginning told me, okay, um, Japan's going to explode in another two weeks, and this is a powder keg that's about to explode, and you're delusional to think that they do things right. Um, I come from a background where I look at flows and networks, so I try to find like where the vulnerable spots within the network, and hospital was an obvious one. The second obvious one early on was elder care homes, where we have a lot of fatalities, a lot of people died because of neglect. And the third one that came up very early on was that most of uh contagion happened indoors, almost all of it, at home. And the other thing, the other critical point was industrial environments. Mm. So this is the thing. And it's sort of like if you have a lockdown, if you, the lockdown comes too late, the only thing is you do, you send people that are already infected home into crowded homes. And then they infect everyone else in the household. And this is the problem I anticipated in March already. You can lock down, like you have to have an idea as a government, at which point does lockdown make sense? Like, what do you need to have in order? And then, of course, you have to know, like, once you go into the lockdown, you also have to know, like, how to get out of it. The one thing you cannot do is start improvising in a critical situation. What we've seen is ignoring what we've known before about how to respond to an epidemic, ripping up all the the playbooks we had. And starting from scratch, making things up on the fly, and this is a bad thing if you don't know how an epidemic cycle evolves, the first thing. And the other thing is if you don't know where you are in the cycle. Another key aspect is that if we're observing a case today, this means we had an infection like a week ago. If we're using hospital statistics, it means this person who gets into the hospital today has probably got infected two weeks ago. So So basically you have this observation lag, which is also exacerbated by reporting lags. Sometimes it takes like four days or more for something that happens in the hospital to be reported to the authorities. So we actually always at all times, we were looking at things that happened like two, three weeks in the past but did not account for that. And that's, and that's a quicker thing. That's also something I pointed out in March that in a lot of countries, the epidemic cycle had already peaked by the time, so the contagion cycle had already peaked by the time we were imposing lockdowns. So we are on the way down. And this is something that people just simply did not ignore. We have, luckily, we have a couple of scientific studies now. Simon Wood is a famous mathematician, in short, in a lot of cases, we were just too late. So lockdown even if you're on the down end of the cycle still, could be useful, but you're clearly not getting the response or the effect that a nuclear response like a lockdown would warrant. might be saving lives, and this is my expectation, that we saved lives, but like at a cost of probably, I don't know, $10 million per life saved. And we were very close to a global meltdown last year, and people did not realize that. So we had like a lot of agricultural supply chains which were just disrupted. I remember we had like massive amounts of potatoes being unused. So we had like pork uh, supply chains. I remember that a lot of pigs had to be killed because there was no slaughterhouses anymore. We came very, very close to a crisis, very major crisis based on the lockdown we had last year. And I think the realization between last year and this year was that we cannot do this again. We probably came very close to a financial meltdown, too. So, like the lockdown we had in 2021 looked very different from the lockdown in 2020, partly because.
1: I know maybe in academic circles, it may seem that we have realized that we cannot do this again, but certainly in the media and in the popular perception, a lot of people are still declaring the lockdown as a victory. So, but we'll get to that. One country I also want you to talk about is Sweden. Sweden was particularly in the news at some point during that crisis. A lot of people were looking at Sweden as either the model for success or for failure. On how to do or not do this. I remember a lot of the numbers coming out of Sweden were being compared either in absolute terms, or some people say, oh, you have to adjust for population relative to the approaches of their Nordic neighbors. So, from your observation, what was going on with Sweden?
0: Yeah, so my focus was much more on Japan and Sweden, but of course, Sweden became this strongly discussed touch point on like how to approach a crisis like that. I said like two things was I think they did made a couple of mistakes Sweden's, but I expected them to like if you're taking the say excess mortality statistics of Europe now, you would not be able to pinpoint Sweden. It's somewhere in the middle. It's actually at the lower end. So like they're not anywhere close to like countries like Spain, Belgium or or Italy. Right. So the comparison is always Sweden to the other Nordic countries. They have far more fatalities than Denmark, Finland, Norway. But largely this is because their elder care system is very different. So it's much more efficient, but it also puts elderly people in care homes at risk. Yeah, so like I expected that Sweden would end up somewhere in the field compared to all others. And of course, remember that the initial claim was that if countries don't do anything, we will have millions of debt. Of course, that did not come true. The other country that comes to mind here is Belarus, which didn't do anything. And they have elevated fatality, but not anywhere close to whatever was predicted as the grim end. The other thing about Sweden is that all of the Nordic countries were running a very low restriction strategy. I think the others locked down early on, but then they, they, they relaxed and they relaxed even more than Sweden. So like you can use Sweden for a number of mistakes they made but definitely not as a case that propels strict long-term measures. And in the end, you can do strict measures. You should do strict measures where necessary. You have to have an understanding early on beforehand, like in 2019 and not 2020, in March of 2020, like went to lockdown. The former head of public health services in Sweden, Giesek, he said, basically said, like, if, you, if you're going into a lockdown, do you know how to get out of it? And if you don't know how to get it out, you'll not get out of it any time. Remember the initial claim was we're going into lockdown for three weeks. It's like flatten the curve. Then we can uh, rejoice, come out again. And that, of course, did not happen. Exactly what he predicted is that we have ongoing lockdowns and increasing confusion about what to do. So we have like goal, goal conflict. And this is something you want to avoid in a public crisis.
1: That's an important point because it got to a stage where lockdowns became quite politicized, you know, and people were complaining about their civil rights and uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, other things. So in the light of that, I also remember that you got into this public—I <laughs> don't want to see whatever passes for a debate on Twitter, anyways. With Paul Roma, the Nobel laureate, about yes, yeah, the approach exactly. that he was advocating that, oh, if we want to avoid locking down the economy, then we have to do this massive scaling in testing. And you're yeah. very critical of that. What was wrong with his point of view?
0: Um, I was not so much critical about expanding tests at the point where we're still not able to interpret tests. A huge mistake that was made early on was to basically just report new cases without looking at the expansion of testing that happened at the same time. So in March last year, we had, like you remember those charts, the seemingly exponential charts about like new cases exploding everywhere. But at the time, we basically had a thousand-fold increase in cases. We also had a thousand-fold increase in testing. The countries went from 300 tests per day to 300,000 tests per day. So this is something you have to take into account, and that's not easy. That's not simple. We cannot do random sampling at this point. We're just using tests for medical purposes. We try to find out if this patient is infected with corona or not. Like There was no attempt whatsoever to interpret... The increased case numbers we saw, other than assume that because we see these case numbers coming up, it must mean that we have currently this exponential growth. But as I said, if you're observing a case today, this means the infection event happened about a week or more earlier, especially early on. You're finding a pool of PCR tests can show prior infections up to six weeks later, they get very imprecise at the end. You have a positive test for something that happened six weeks before, an infection that happened six weeks before. So this was like, there was no attempt to sift through the data and sort of understand what's happening. My point at this point was like, okay, we're seeing something, we're seeing growth, accelerating growth, but it actually indicates that something happened likely in February. And my point was always, okay, we're actually like far behind the curve on what we're seeing. And if you know anything about dynamic systems, the key thing to understand is you have to have very, very timely information. If you act on something that happened three weeks ago, and it takes another three weeks for whatever your intervention was to show up in the data, then you have a huge problem. Even like today, 80% of the papers coming out, they don't try to backdate the observation data. So like um, testing by reporting date should be calculated back to either symptom onset, which is the time you're showing for symptoms of being sick, or even better to uh, the day of infection. Which we don't see, and if you don't account for that, you're making a very basic and very grave mistake in analyzing the data and, and basically proposing responses because you're too late. And we have this very much this discussion right now. We had another circuit breaker, uh, attempted circuit breaker um, lockdown in Germany just two weeks ago, and sort of like now we've shown up claims that the circuit breaker had immediate effect on the number of patients in intensive care. And that's just not possible. That's taking from infection to people ending up in a, uh, intensive care in the hospital. It's but between two and, or three weeks. So claiming that we've seen an immediate response to an intervention is just shows like someone does not understand fundamental dynamic systems. And if Paul Roma is one of them, then we have a problem he gets, <laughs> because he gets a lot of traction. I remember like um, like months later reading a conversation between a couple of blue checks, academic blue checks, including like Nate Silver and a couple of others, where they basically were discussing whether it's important to consider like positive rates in addition to positive counts. Test gone. And as I, uh, I said this in, in March you have to look at both. You cannot look at either one, and you also have to know what the testing regime was. Was it patients being tested? Was it outbreak clusters being tested? Was it testing in a professional setting? Right? So are, if you're going back to work and you're being tested, if you're sick or not, those are very different testing scenarios. So you have to collect what's called a data object. Like, who is the person being tested? How old is the person being tested? Uh, What is the environment? Does this person show symptoms? In order to draw inferences about the change of positivity in the population. What we've done was much too crude. It took like three or four months for people to actually realize, and as academic people, to actually realize that broad test counts are not sufficient to give you any good picture of what's going on.
1: You were also quite critical of neo and, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the Imperial College Modeling Group. Uh, yeah. And I recall that at first the UK government was trying to be empirical in its approach, but... Yeah. From the pressures, at least that's my own considered judgment, from the pressures of the model from the imperial led by Ferguson that, oh, I mean, this is exponential, it's going yeah. to get really bad, they changed their approach really quickly, the government changed its approach really quickly, lest it be accused yeah. of negligence. So, I mean, what was Ferguson and Co getting wrong?
0: Um, like Imperial predicted 40 million people dying before the end of the year, if nothing happened, um, there's there's many mistakes. Ferguson is sort of my generation and I've been doing these dynamic models, especially dynamic simulations for three years. and, And I have an idea of like, when can you use them? When can you not use them? And simulations are not a scientific tool. They're an engineering tool. Right. We use them a lot in engineering, sort of basically try to find out, like, try to get a hold of the parameters of the system to know where we're wrong. We actually use them to learn something about ourselves, our own assumptions, rather than using them to predict an actual scenario. They're very poor. Simulations are extremely poor at forecasting, but they're useful for like using extreme scenarios. It was very clear that the predictions they made were based on very, very obvious number of simplifying assumptions. One of them, the key is like sort of the homogeneity assumption, which I mentioned before, that everyone, everyone in the population is the same. Almost like what's it called, SIR models, SEIR models, are being used in epidemiology. They tend to ignore differences within the population. They tend to ignore geography. And they are much too crude for something like this, a lot, for a lot of reasons. A, a viral outbreak is not a state space model, which is the, the SIR model. So they ignored a lot of stuff. They had like very poor code, which is like I don't know, a couple of years old. So like basically the like the bombshell claim they made in mid-March, which led to the change, like an ad hoc change in strategy, should have gotten much, much more critical scrutiny because there are obviously simple mistakes being made. And Of course, at this point, if someone comes up, OK, we're doing it wrong, everybody will die. Then, of course, you're moving into a panic react, trying to shut everything down. I don't think it's absolutely the wrong point. And, and Ferguson has a track record of that. Like basically every time Ferguson comes up with a forecast, it's by orders of magnitude off. Like he did the same thing in 2003 with the SARS outbreak, where he basically just got the numbers wrong. And it's a fundamental problem that if you're making predictions on those those measures being used in epidemiology, like IFR, infection fatality rate, and also the R0, is you're using information that is far too early, so you tend to overstate those numbers. And if you don't pay attention to that, if you don't take that into account, you believe that the outbreak will be much worse than it is. So like, yeah, well, like the thing is, um, one of the points I wanted to get across from very early on is that we are in a serious epidemic, but we have comparables in the past since like uh, World War II. And it will not come close to the flu epidemic we've experienced in 1918, mm. or it would be very, very, very unlikely to happen because the um, 1918 was an extreme case in so many things. The other thing is like we have to consider is it's not so much the the virus that kills; it's unpreparedness, and that's what we see in rather extreme differences in fatality rates between countries, being like Belgium or, or Luxembourg for instance, that if you don't have a plan in place before this happens, and this is the same for any kind of potential catastrophe, earthquakes, whatever, volcanoes, tsunamis, what we see in Japan is very good at preparedness because they all experienced all those things in the, in the last couple of years. They had major earthquakes, they had major tsunamis. It was very clear that some countries, especially UK and US, United States, were, were caught unprepared. And then they started improvising, but they did not protect the demographic groups that were most at risk, which is typically industrial area. It's like people working class, blue-collar, and of course older people. And it took them forever to do something, and the hospital system were overstressed. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, one of the things I predicted earlier on is that UK and US will do poorly
1: against basically the other prediction, yeah before moving to uh, some other interesting subplots. Also, during the height of the reporting and everything and the panic, there were also two things that were coming from, I don't want to say fringe academics. Some were saying that we should have started challenge trials, I mean, radiation quite early. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think that would have made a difference? And secondly, you talked about a lot more infections happening indoors, and I I recall some infectious diseases especially saying that we were not paying enough attention to viral load, which would matter a lot more in in an indoor setting. So would those things, would they have made a difference, Uh, especially in getting us more information? To know how to model this or predict what might happen.
0: Well, I never, I never build a formal model because I think in a situation like that you have to have a model in place and it has to be stress tested, or you're probably getting the wrong conclusions. Mm-hmm. One of the things I noticed very early on is that, contrary to general belief, population density. Did not drive the epidemic. Like most early outbreak centers were actually smaller towns. If you remember, in Lombardy, the cities like Cadoneo, like very small industrial cities. Even Bergamo, the city of Bergamo in Italy, is it a like mid-sized city got most of the uh, cases coming from villages and the hospital in bergamo was got overstretched. And the biggest city in Normandy, which is Milan, by uh, the most densely populated city is Milan, which did not get caught up in the first wave, which is something that should tell us that sort of population density is not the driver. It's high occupancy of buildings, which Mm -hmm. was the driver. That was something that got confirmed later on. Should have informed us very early on about what we can do and we still have this discussion of nowadays. It's like okay, can you go outdoors? I know people who basically spend the whole year indoors we've known for a long time that almost all superclusters happen indoors. Right, so, like, things about, like, can you go to the beach? Um, of course, you should get as much time as possible outdoors. Stay away from too crowded areas. But, like, we don't really have any outdoor contagion event. they are definitely not super spreader. Um, basic mistakes were made when the information was clearly there early on. I think so. the only European cities, the big cities, that got caught up were Madrid and Stockholm in the first wave. Everything else was basically happening in mid-size, smaller smaller cities, like Germany is like cities like you've never heard of, Heinsberg, Tyshenroet. These are all cities along industrial supply chains and not really the high population density. Berlin did not get caught up in the first wave, even though we have uh, Berlin, three and a half million people, plus a lot of tourist traffic, especially in the winter. And so and then you have all kind of entertainment venues. We probably had 2000 events in Berlin in the winter or something, and we did not have anything. So that is an indicator that a lot of the things we assumed early on about how the virus spreads were wrong. And we could have learned that by just looking at the data.
1: The lockdown measures. Affected how to see the global economy. I mean, you talked about agriculture, supply chains. Uh, yes. Nigeria, Nigeria is still dealing with high food inflation that uh, certainly was made worse by the disruption to the food supply systems during yeah. the lockdown here. Yeah. So, naturally, economists got involved in all of this. And there was a bit of a tough war between economists and epidemiologists, you know, about how to model this or that. My question to to you would be, did we witness some kind of expert failure during that episode? Um, well we definitely
0: we definitely witnessed an academic failure. A lot of things academics had very early on was was very wrong. Well Imagine that the economists were calling for a six month long lockdown last year. Luckily we, we learned that very quickly. I remember that in Germany a couple of days after the lockdown was announced, we had a discussion about like giving exemptions to asparagus harvesters. So there was a fairly early realization that we cannot lock down the economy and luckily we didn't do that but we actually put a lot of supply chain workers at risk also like if you're working from home you can only do that if someone supplies you with all the things you need so like the whole delivery supply chain the amazon fulfillment centers these are all like the people that were showing the highest risks of being exposed to the virus and this is like the part of the economy we cannot close down and it was like a much, much too late. I criticize a lot of economists for not understanding how supply chains work. If you don't know how a supply chain works, you know, like you have a massive gap in your understanding of how the world works, the economic world works. Yeah. And that's a problem. So, yeah, like my point was always like, okay, it's very, very important to follow the evidence. But this is a very, very different thing from follow the science because science does not tend to have, especially not in a situation like that, Quick answer. Science is supposed to answer a very complicated question over a very, very long time, or five to ten years. Right? So we've gotten some good work on scientific literature, but we've gotten a lot of work that just like basically was wrong. And we're seeing sort of like this follow the science, follow the academic experts, which is completely unwarranted seeing the basic mistakes they made. It's like a lot of theoretical modelers have very clearly no understanding on how to measure things. And we see in the first sound criticism of, like, the academic modeling coming from practitioners, mostly in production environments. And this is also where I come from, right? So if you're making negligent mistakes about measuring what you're trying to measure, your plant will blow up. And so, like, especially like people from quality control, like so, like, so watch this. And this so you cannot ignore the fact that what we're seeing now happened two or three weeks ago. And so, yeah, I've started to look much more at people that are actually on the ground, people that are in hospitals, um, people like hygienic experts, like who have to deal with with things on the ground, also understand that there is a huge gap in occupancy within hospitals. Some of the hospitals were completely overstretched. Others were half empty, which is a signal that whatever load balancing you're trying to do does not work. And this is the whole point of the exercise. You're basically trying to take a system that is completely out of equilibrium and bring it back to equilibrium by sort of routing patients to the right hospitals, also making those decisions. Should this patient go to the hospital? Yes or no. And if if it's a doubt, it's usually no, because you're overstretching. You're overstretching the hospital. You're also recognizing very early on that, um, like, all those neglected environments, elder care homes, were not sufficiently protected. You know, Elecar like homes, industries, right? This took far too long. Follow the evidence does not equal follow academics and especially does not follow that uh, you should follow the blue checked academics on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That yeah, this is a problem that a lot of people with an agenda became very
1: popular on Twitter. True that. Yeah. I mean, it's a very subtle but important distinction. So I'm mean, going yes, follow, yeah. follow the evidence and not necessarily the yeah. science. So yeah. I mean, keeping with this theme of expert failure, in my view, now the practical question in this case would be for planners, politicians, bureaucrats, yes. what do you think is the best way, especially in future planning and preparedness for events like this, how is the best way to learn from the evidence? Who should you be listening to? Because I mean, there were multiple failures Yeah. The WHO came out to say masks do not work, <laughs> which yes. later yeah. revised. We spent weeks debating whether it was transmissible through the air. Uh, yeah. I mean, so many things. So, if you are a politician or someone responsible for policy. Yeah how do you learn from the evidence
0: um, we definitely have to we definitely have to have a reckoning of all the things that went wrong not only like early wrong calls but there was a lot of like ongoing obfuscation about like what got wrong initially i remember like discussing about asymptomatic cases there was basically a refusal to accept that most of the cases are asymptomatic even if we had early studies that showed that it took forever. And if you have asymptomatic cases, then your whole like, mathematical tool set is off because if you're using IFR, infection fatality rate, your denominator is unobservable because you don't know how many people are affected. So I spend a lot of time in sort of crisis environments, like crisis response environment as part of my work. And the typical people in those scenario rooms or situation rooms are, tend to be practitioners. Even people with military backgrounds, because in the military you do a lot of war game, you do a lot of extremist scenarios. You don't usually have academics, because they're not really the type of people who are able to pick the most plausible information and run with it. This is a problem we have seen. So I think we've given the microphone to far too many scientists who are just simply not attuned to a crisis environment. And yeah, we have to have a reckoning of all the things that were wrong. And we have to have an understanding. There was a lot of misinformation coming from all kinds of places, from political places, of course. People have a political idea of how this epidemic might play out. Of course, the whole, like, this is a hoax movement. Of course, it's not a hoax. But you have to understand like, where to put it and how to develop timely responses based on timely data. And this is a, a task for, for practitioners with deep experience, deep professional experience. Of course, a, a academic, scientific background, engineering background is typical what you see in those environments, but their yeah, deep experience with crisis situations is much more important. So it's coming far more from healthcare practitioners, hospital practitioners than from academics. That was a, a, a huge mistake. Very clearly seeing all things, and I've I've been reading, I've been rereading my own Twitter feed from last year, and I'm seeing all the simple, avoidable mistakes that were made, propagated through Twitter with the credentials of a,
1: a blue-checked academic. This should not have happened. Yes, yeah, I agree. We need a serious reckoning, yeah, yeah. and an honest one at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and especially, I mean, this is like we're putting like the future of Africa at risk at the point, I'm sure. Most African countries are locked down, from my understanding, based on what they heard from North America and Europe. Yes. And it was very clearly the wrong environment. It was basically people making calls that don't have the, basically, credentials they should have, in this case. And I also like, very, very clearly that all Asian countries responded far better than Western countries. And they have all kinds of different containment strategies, but they're all, they're all far closer to environments where catastrophes could happen anytime. I mean, the Pacific is known as the ring of fire. So you always have earthquakes, you have tsunamis, and you have volcanic uh, kind outbreaks. Of yeah. So and they have a solid bureaucracy in place that does scenario planning in between disasters, and it showed.
1: Well, I do hope that reckoning comes, soon. OK. <laughs> so, so, I mean, now we have vaccines and I mean, you're someone with a lot of experience in industry, manufacturing, production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this question about vaccine manufacturing, getting everybody yeah. vaccinated. The latest development now is the question of India and how yes, is yeah. India fully vaccinated. There's yeah. a lot of discussion about IPs. But naturally, I would say right-leaning economists have pushed back that IPs are not the problem. And it's about scaling up manufacturing capacity. What, what is going on here?
0: It's, um, it, it's, it's a tricky one. I think it's another thing that you basically coming out of unpreparedness. Yeah, we should get vaccines as quickly as possible to everyone globally. And we have this, of course, the uh, ongoing discussion like vaccine hesitancy. I actually see much more like lack of interest rather than active anti vaccine sentiment. A lot of people just don't care, strangely enough, whatever it's <laughs> to, to make of that. But, um on, on IP, this is like one of the good things coming out of this whole catastrophe is basically the vaccines based on messenger RNA. So uh, Moderna and BioNTech. Um, this will completely change, radically change the R&D supply chain in pharmaceuticals. And we haven't seen any, yet. it's going to be, going to be hopefully a very positive change. We'll see malaria vaccines coming down the pipeline. And so everyone who did good, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies who developed r and based vaccines did good to the world. They should be rewarded. Very clearly, the key right now is to overcome the bureaucratic hurdles, but they will stand to make a lot of money coming down the pipeline from the oncoming RNA vaccines. Also, from the hopefully positive changes in the approval process, we've seen that we are actually able to conceive vaccines and get them approved in a year. So a lot of the time lag, which is not really bureaucratic time lag, but it's like um, physicians not moving forward. So we can cut that down very quickly. So we get vaccine platforms. So that's the positive thing. So yeah, right right now is very much the overarching goal has to be to get the vaccine out to all countries, including developing countries very, very quickly, especially India right now. And then we'll figure out money later but as I said, like everyone who has built an MRLA platform now is stand to to make a lot of money on this, mm-hmm. and they should and and they, they deserve to if they're actually helping helping eradicate malaria. This would be a massive step,
1: uh, yeah,
0: Yeah. positive step in the world, especially the Africa. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I agree. I mean, Oliver, we can continue this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I, but I, yeah. My final question, I would say, okay. for today, it's a bit of a trivia, but I mean, obviously, the theme and the general thing we try to promote on the show is uh, ideas. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned also sometime last year, which you also referenced quite a number of times after that, that Thomas Micro Motives and Macro Behavior is a good read for what was happening in the world at the time. What do you think we can learn from Thomas Schelling, especially from that book? What were the ideas? My my own
0: dissertation was making uh, some of Thomas Schelling's insights very complicated and mathematical, but a key point I was trying to make 20 years ago is that if you have network effects, and this is also what we're seeing here, it could also be in social contagion, but also viral contagion, the the one case we have here, but also um, supply chain, We also have the same effects in supply chain, is that structure matters. You cannot make a homogeneity assumption in a, in a networked environment. You have to understand the structure of the network, and the structure of the network will affect outcomes. So sort of 20 years ago, when I wrote my dissertation, people simply did not understand what I was talking about. Are like, you interested in that? Sort of, um, you're just making very simple math more complicated. And I think by now, I think we have a realization. We have lots of data coming from social networks, influencer networks. Now we have basically the tool set to bring heterogeneity into modeling viral networks. And that just simply did not happen before. And this is like with a starting point. If you want to start epidemiological modeling of viral contagion, and this would be my my contribution there.
1: Thank you very much, Oliver, for doing this. Uh, Thank you, Toby. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com.